Hello, my name is Mich Michelle O'Brien, and I will be having a conversation with Mackenzie Wark for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is June 20th, 2019, and this has been recorded at the New York Public Library's Midtown Manhattan offices. Hello. Hi there. How are you doing today? I'm wonderful, thank you. Uh, let's start off and uh, have you introduce yourself a little bit. Um, my name is Mackenzie York. Um, I'm a professor at the New School for Social Research and uh, Eugene Long College. I teach um, culture and media. Um, I'm probably mostly a teacher in order to support a truly ferocious writing addiction that I've had for most of my life. Um, and I re I'm originally from um, uh, Newcastle in the uh, east coast of Australia. I've lived in New York for 20 years. Mm -hmm. What pronouns do you use or words do you have any identification with? Um, I'm probably a they, them at the moment. I, I, I feel like I'm kind of in transit. I, I feel like I, I, the one thing I really knew is I wanted to get out of masculinity. I, and I still don't know where to. So I, so, and this is just me, my personal thing, right? But I'm, but I'm transiting through the they, them. And I may end up a she, her at some point when I feel like that's where I am. That's for now. Lovely. Uh, and what was your childhood like? I grew up in this steel and coal town 100 miles from Sydney. My accent just got Australian for a minute. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, and it, was, it was, you know, like a middle-class upbringing. My father was a, an architect. Um, my mother had been a psychologist, which she had to give up to uh, become a homemaker, in inverted commas, as people did. Um, I think she she was involved in um, uh, designing hearing tests for kids in school. That's one thing I remember being told. I was really proud that she'd done that. And I actually did the test when I, you know, like the van used to come around and test your hearing. Uh, so she did that, but then she had to give that up. And then she died when I was six. So this is sort of the big event of my childhood is, is um, losing my mother. But I had older siblings who were like a decade older than me. So I was raised by teenagers, essentially. Um, my partner says raised by wolves and that's sort of in retrospect what it feels like I thought they were grown-ups but like they were like 15 to 17 years old you know like <laughs> I have a child that age now and I'm like oh my god if we put you in charge like what would that be like you know my father was still alive and we didn't have a bad relationship but you know it, we were never close and uh, you know I, I used to say he was a heavy drinker he really was an alcoholic I think looking back on it and a little temperamental and uh, so I used to stay out of his way kind of thing. So I don't, I don't really have, you know, much to say about that. But yeah, raised my teenagers in, in you know, public schools in this steel and coal town. It was nothing to do but surf, but it has some of the best surfing in the world, basically. Like it's not big wave or any of that, but the coastline is very twisty. So, you know, I remember my brother would always be with his friends would be like, it's, uh, it's four o'clock. Uh, midsummer uh, with the rising tide and a nor nor'easter, so we're going to Caves Beach. And I was just like, what is this knowledge? You know, but I hated the whole beach thing. And, you know, I, I just, you know, there was just nothing to do if you didn't want to surf except, you know, become a communist, a drug addict, a delinquent, or something like, or a punk rock. You know, there was, I did all those things instead, you know, and that was, that was Newcastle. What order did you do them in? Uh, Good delinquent first, I think. 
Um, it's explained to my kids I got caught shoplifting and talked my way out of it when I was a teenager. A lot, among the things not to do kind of stories you tell kids. Because, like, I would have ruined my life, right, if they'd actually called the cops. Like, I wouldn't be here. I would you know, probably not be able to come to America. Um, I did that. Um, it's a port town, so, like, the drugs were great because that's, like, the, the entry and the transit and everything. And um, definitely punk rock. And I used to hang out at the... The pub, the Grand Hotel, where the punk bands played in the back, and uh, the front bar during the day was like cops and lawyers because the courthouse was across the road. Uh, you you could buy from the uh, the publicans who ran it essentially at that time. I'm not speaking of the Grand Hotel now. Um, merchant seamen used to come through, and you know it's like after it closed, sometimes we'd end up in the rec rooms on the ships and stuff. You know. Um, it was kind of super interesting. Oh, and it was close to the psych hospital for Mandrax, right? You know, <laughs> and the pool table had this weird warp, and it's the only one I ever played even passably well on. Because if you knew that, you could just beat the out of towners. You know, <laughs> you, you know how to do it. And there was like two punk bands, and you know, I just I used to hang out with the in high school. I used to hang out with the, the university people because um, they just you know they seemed so more interesting, and they had good weed, and you know. They had better record collections. And so I was, you know, sort of drifting into that orbit a little bit, um, you know, in my late teens. And, and I, yeah, I became a, a kind of um, labor movement militant, you know, at, at 16, 17. I don't remember exactly when the um, reformist labor government of Gough Whitlam was thrown out of office in 1975. And it was essentially a CIA-backed quiet coup and... It just kind of seemed like reformism wasn't going to work. So, you know, like, what else do you do? Um, so, yeah, I, I, I figured out later I had absolutely no talent for actual politics whatsoever. But you know, <laughs> that, that was my training, you know, was, was how to do that stuff. Was, you know, uh, steel workers with bits of fingers missing and stuff like that. You know. What was your role in the, in the union activism that you were doing? Um, I ended up in like, you know, popular front work, you would say, you know, like the peace movement was a huge thing. Um, you know, I, I remember doing a, uh, participating in an anti, a, a, a pro-abortion rally in 1979, you know, um, what else do we do? I was really interested in the, um, uh, trade union environmental center. So I used to hang around with those guys, which is more, those are like my, more engineers than, than workers which is kind of interesting um trading and research center um yeah newcastle had a really interesting sort of progressive labor history um just sort of coal you know coal and ports they're all these like like choke points like all kinds of labor that worked to shut down industry like we had them all uh so there's really interesting history that you could kind of like connect to were there queer communities I met, I can never, I never know whether to call Glenn Hennessy my first or second boyfriend because, like, he was like the first gay man I met. Um, but he wasn't the first one I slept with, you know, like we had this, you know, like making doe eyes at each other thing, you know. He was at university uh, and he was like a gay communist Aboriginal and I was illegal, I was underage, like, you know, if he got caught with me, it would not only fuck his life, he'd probably die for it. So he was quite circumspect, not only for that reason, like he was incredibly gentle and respectful of me and 
Um, so we used to talk into the night, and he was studying linguistics and German and and stuff. And he was the last speaker of his own language, and this burns me up to this day that he was alive with a dead language in him. And I'm I'm so angry about this, and I I put it in a book, but I there's nothing I can do with it. You know what I mean? It's it's this is just the thing about Brandon. But he was the first person I met. And I met the people around him who understood him and accepted him. And, um, but that, there was a kind of like, you know, like old Queens kind of scene in, in Newcastle that I stumbled into occasionally and uh, kind of tried to figure out. I, I kind of felt a little bit like, you know, um, like fresh meat, you know. I was kind of a little wary of that, you know. Um, yeah, so I, I didn't, like, really connect uh, um, gay people to the university, so I left town, you know. Because this shit would get you beaten up in Newcastle. It was a, you know, working-class town. Provincial town. Where did you go to? Um, I couldn't wait to get out. I went to Macquarie University. Um, I asked the comrades which university I should go to, and they assigned me to that one. So <laughs> I went there, um, which was kind of great. And um, where I met my first or second boyfriend, who I had on and off for 13 years, you know, and, and it was like, he was a gaslighter. It really wasn't a great relationship in lots of ways, but boy, was the sex great. He had access to terrific drugs. Um, and so I just went on for way too long, you know. And, uh, he's, he's called Edward when I write about him, which is not his real name. He's still alive. And I just want to be respectful of that, but I don't want any contact with him. I went to his mother's funeral with him after we'd broken up, and that was the last time. I was like, this is the last time we'll see each other. So, yeah, I was, you know, I was secretary of the student union when I was 19 years old and way over my head and uh, trying to do this, like, you know, left-wing coalition of the gay and lesbian kids and the environmentalists and the feminists and the communists and the left-wing Labour Party. And I was like, yeah, I just, nah, I'm, I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to do something else. And so, like, I thought I was gay. Like, turned out I wasn't. But, like, that was how I was trying to resolve everything. It was like, oh, I'll be gay, you know. Um, and it was it was through sexuality I found a femininity. But I didn't know how, what else to do with it. Like, I just, you know, I didn't know what else to do with it. And what kills me about this now is this is Australia in the 80s. There are probably only, like, six trans women in public life in Australia at all. Right, there are obviously more than that, but who you would publicly know, you know, there were six, and I met three of them at my own university, and I didn't relate. Like Catherine Cummings was the humanities librarian who I really loved, and I, in retrospect, I'm pretty sure clocked me, and was very kind to me. Um, but she was like very like um, her actual the way she ran her life was conservative. She was a very open-minded person, but I just didn't relate to. You know, sort of middle-aged suburban lady wasn't me. And uh, I met Roberta Perkins, who um, was a former sex worker who got a PhD on trans sex workers and was you know advocate for sex worker health. And she was just physically not like me. You know, I was always tiny. I kind of felt feminine because I was always a small person. Like, I, I didn't kind of physically connect to her, even though I really, the work was super interesting. And, and, you know, like, Signs that you're trans that you miss. I'm minored in women's studies, which was set up by um, R.W. Connell pre-transition. 
later known as Raywin Conrad, and still known as R.W., uh, and set up this this you know women's studies thing where we sat in, in bean bags, you know, and and read Michelle Barrett or whatever, and you know, and so yeah, I didn't connect. I didn't, you know, it's one of the the you know times I didn't quite see what was in front of me, if you like, you know, as an undergrad. So yeah, I tried being gay and I tried being straight, and you know, it was a terrible time to try to be gay if you were like faggy and femmy because like I kind of got there right when like the clone era happened and this like Tom of Finland hyper masculine thing was going on and uh, and it's connected to uh, the awareness of the AIDS pandemic where like everybody thought like if you topped you were safe this is not a fact right but this is what people felt at the time so if you're uh, if you're a queen like you're you're the plague. Like both straight and gay people thought that, you know, there were clubs you couldn't get into. So yeah, I, I you know, I had a couple of close calls. Like I, you know, in in Sydney, you know, you're assigned a number and you would get your test results back in the mail addressed to your number, you know, and you would open the envelope alone and, you know, like a lottery sort of thing. And I, it kind of scared me straight. I'm not proud of this, but I just fucking fled you know i just couldn't deal and i tried to be a straight person and and it's like i can do either of these things but it neither was really the problem you know what i mean it's like oh it wasn't about sexuality in the end but yeah that was that what was connell like sorry what was connell like um i have to be careful here because my memory is all pre-transition of being respectful of her um and I didn't actually take gender studies with her. Um, she was studying class. And I, I did these like really terrific classes on class. But I mostly didn't go to is the other thing. Like, I, was, I never went to class. You know, I would just like get the handout and I got a pass for being political because you could do that in these days. And also I would just spend my free time in the current serials section of the library reading all of the debates that were going on and write papers on the stuff that our professors sort of wanted to know about but hadn't got around to. And they loved this, you know. So I just got to, you know, so I, I didn't interact with, with Raywin all that much. But, um, but I'm, I modeled my pre-transition look on the pre-transition R.W. Connell. Like, you know, there was this jeans and like flowy shirts and boots thing that was going on and, and I was like, huh. <laughs> I'm like, I kind of clocked that and, and this was like the, the 80s where you can hang out with your professors and like your professors would fuck you if you really wanted to kind of thing, which never happened in this case. But uh, so, yeah, I was like modeling myself partly on, you know, pre-transition Raymond. <laughs> funny to think about now so at some point you transitioned from being an organizer to being a writer yeah yeah i I was like i can't i you know and it was partly you know i i got outed um i was kind of thin-skinned i was you know nerdy and intellectual and and queer even if not in the way i thought i was so yeah I'm i'm not cut out for this but i like to write and that's my contribution. I'm a writer. How do I support that? And I was a journalist for a long time. Um, cannot make a living doing that in Australia. I made radio for a while. Uh, I fell sideways into academia, like completely by accident. Uh, I was doing a master's degree and 
and and they said, oh, you should apply for this uh, full-time teaching job because you're adjuncting a bit and you won't get this job, but it's the rules that because you're an internal candidate, you must be interviewed and you'll get the experience of that, you know. Uh, and so I sign up and the interviews are one after the other, 45 minutes. It's not like in the States. And, and like, you know, I'm waiting there in this suit that doesn't fit and I hear shouting coming from the room and I'm like, is that how this works? And it's, it's not a funny story. Like the guy that had lined up to do the job had a nervous breakdown in the interview and I'm ushered in and there's this like ashen-faced interview committee are just like hand me this full-time job because I'm already doing it. I'm already the adjunct for all this stuff, you know? Um, I didn't, hadn't finished my master's degree, and I'm a full-time academic with four TAs reporting to me, doing lectures to hundreds of business students to give them their token humanities courses, which they loathed and hated and despised. So I was like, show up for work, go to the toilet and throw up, you know, set up a video camera. I had to videotape myself doing all the lectures because half these students didn't speak English as a first language. So they videotaped them so they could watch them with friends in the library to get information out of it. You know, I go to the library and there's my face on monitors, you know. And to this day, I'm dysphoric about my own image. So I'm going in the library and there's me talking, you know. Like, it's just a nightmare. And the department didn't love me because I'm wearing suits to work to try to relate to the business students. So I didn't look radical enough. And this this was uh, was now called um, University of Technology Sydney. Um yeah, so after a couple of years of that, they fired me, and I ended up back at Macquarie, where I'd been an undergrad. Um, there is a little schadenfreude like um, rider to this story. I got headhunted to go back and run that department a couple of years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I heard out the, the headhunter's spiel, you know, but because of your historic connection to the University of Technology, I'm like, no, thank you. <laughs> like, I had, I had real friends there, I got to say. And, and including one gay man who was very, very kind to me. And, and what was otherwise a quite wonderful lesbian who hit on me, but it didn't work out. Uh, but administratively, it just wasn't a home. You know, I ended up back in Macquarie. What were your social connections like during this time, both politically and, and your friendship networks? And... Oh, God, can I remember anything about the 80s at all? Uh, it was the ecstasy era and, um, you know, of, of the, of the trans stereotyped types, I was drug trans quite a lot and lucky as hell to, um, have never had serious addiction issues or to have contracted hepatitis or HIV. Um, I kind of think I came close a few times, but I, you know, so skated through that era, uh, being much more reckless than I should have. And it was a world that was gay adjacent. Like, the world queer didn't exist yet. Um, and there was, the gay scene was gay, capital G. But there was, like, adjacent to that was a world that kind of was a lot more fluid than that. And there wasn't really a name for it, you know. So, yeah, we all just took E and, and hung out. And, and it sort of really wasn't about whether you're gay or straight or anything. So that was my world. And it was, like, it's kind of bohemian, I guess. And we lived in the... Uh, King's Cross part of Sydney and Darlinghurst, which was, you know, still pretty shady in those days, you know. Uh, I remember wearing tennis shoes and, like, stepping on a sharp that went between my big toe and the next toe, you know. And, and I'm like, you're not going to get HIV from that, but, like, hepatitis is a, re- is a possibility, you know what I mean? That's what you're, you're thinking. And, you know, 
or tetanus. Like, <laughs> so yeah, I was, I was kind of living a reckless life with a strong sense of self-preservation, which is a weird contradiction, but that, that was what I was doing. I wanted to be an academic. You know? As a day job and writing for all these little magazines and making radio, which I really loved, but didn't pay. And uh, I ended up with a newspaper column. Like I, my my bio used to be lapsed Marxist in the pay of Rupert Murdoch because I, I had a column for nine years in, in a Murdoch national newspaper. You know, the token the token lefty. You know, or one of them, not only two of us, I think. And how did your writing evolve over time? I'm so thankful to have um, uh, done a lot of journalism. Um, like one one job I had early on was with um, what's called On the Street, which was a weekly free rock and roll newspaper, popularly known as In the Gutter because that's where our reputation was and where you would find our editors by about three a.m. And my job was to be in the office by at least eleven to answer all the angry phone calls from everybody. We, you know, it's a little bit slapdash, so we would have spelt you know bands' names wrong and got all the ads wrong. So all these you know, venues are refusing to pay for them and stuff, you know. We're all paid cash in envelopes under false names. So, like, you had to remember which one was yours. It was, really was horrible in a lot of ways. But it was, like, four people doing a 48-page book every week, you know. So, you know, the layout artist had worked on, like, Ribald. So she was trying to get a portfolio together that she could actually show somebody, you know. Like, the uh, other writer, I can, I can say her name now, Shelley Roy, may she rest in peace, you know. For a while, took so much speed, she went blind. And so, like, I had to do her job as well, you know. It was just so pathetic, you know. I, I graduated into that from a job delivering it, you know. You would just, like, literally throw them in a dumpster and, you know, like, just... Oh, my God. Why am I still alive? You know, I kind of wonder this sometimes. Like, I, I wasn't super reckless, but I was just on the edge of just madness. Uh, but that and doing a column where... Um, I did op-eds where you're you're given uh, you're allowed to pitch something at twelve or you're assigned something and it has to be done by four and on the phone you'd edit it with the cop with the editor you know and it would just be like no that paragraph's gone so it doesn't make any sense this, you know, it was just like this like instant um, training in in prose you know and how not to be precious about it and it's like I, this is part of my teaching now. Writing is manual labor. If you're thinking about it, you're doing it wrong. You just bang away. And you, if it doesn't work, you throw it out and you try again. You know? So the timeline here, what were the years that you were uh, primarily a journalist and then the years you were uh, got into being an academic? Yeah. Let me see. I went to Sydney in 80 and I was um, university 80 to 85 and I had two jobs uh, you know, I was chairperson of the 14th Student Council and I edited the Union's Journal, which was also really great, you know, and I, I laid it out as well. I learned all of these. I, I learned um, pre-press skills in, in the days before computers and I actually got work doing that too. Uh, it's like, I approached writing as a Marxist. I wanted to know the means of production. So I want to know how printing and I, so I learned all that stuff, you know. I, even, I almost learned um, offset printing, but I, I really wasn't diligent. Did pay enough attention, but I used to assist with that sort of stuff with comrades. Um, and in '85, I I got to do a lot of writing because uh, I had a job that supported it. Um, on I don't know, it's 
don't know if it's still there, like the Gay Mile in, in Sydney was Oxford Street, like about two blocks of it. And like the shadiest place on it was Numbers. It was like you go up these stairs and, and it's like um, uh, sex toys and wank mags and, and videos to rent and harnesses and stuff. And out the blacks, glory holes. And I had the midnight shift. So, you know, I'm just like selling tickets and ammo, you know, under the counter. Um, but I could write. Like I used to take my electric typewriter and, and get everything done there. Like, you know, it was like supporting this. And you paid cash. You could skim. Had to be super careful because it's like mob, right? You know, like this guy would show up, you know, to collect, you know, from the safe. And, you know, there was a, a, a phone number sticky tape to the bottom of the phone to call because you'd never call the cops. I mean, not that you would anyway, but like you call this number and these like guys would show up. You know, like, what's the problem? This little can of mace that probably did not work. So, like, I waved it at somebody <laughs> once. It's like, I don't want to press the buttons. If it doesn't work, I'm just screwed here, you know? So, like, that's what it was like, you know? But it was this fantastic job for writing because you're just there all night, you know? So I ended up with this nocturnal life where that's that was what I was doing. Like, And weirdly, I was in the closet of straight in that world. Like, I had a girlfriend at the time who lived a couple of blocks away. So I'd, I'd, you know, do this job and then sneak off there, you know, because I'm like, oh, I wasn't actually gay. Like, my boyfriend got it for me. So, yeah, there was that. And then writing for magazines and, like, harassing them about invoices and all that stuff. It was a great era for, like, kind of people took the punk rock ethos into publishing and really thought they could do things. And, and you'd work for it for three issues and it would fold and go to the next one, you know. So it was that until News Corp. But also, you know, I got into academia. You know, I adjuncted for a while and I got this full-time job and I got, got some others. And next thing I know, I'm on, the, on the, the, the tenure track, essentially, by accident. You know, like I was full-time teaching before I finished my MA. This is impossible now, right? Even in Australia, this would never happen. You know? so, so I can't advise anyone on how to do this stuff because I just did it all wrong. I have no idea how you do it. You know? What year did you move to the new school? Um, I immigrated to New York in 2000. I fell in love with a New Yorker, and I you know, probably coincided with a midlife crisis where I'm like, I'm just leaving it all behind, you know? And I, I got offered, um, she was prepared to come to Australia, and I was prepared to come here. It was like, all right, so we're on. Um, but I got offered a one-year visiting job at Binghamton University. So I'm like, I'll go I'll go to New York. Like I knew theoretically it's 200 miles from New York, right? But I sort of figured it was close enough. And, yes, yeah, so I immigrated in 2000 and I was commuting up. You drive up Monday and come back Friday. It was exhausting. It was miserable. I was living in this basically a squat up there. You know, I paid rent for a squat. It was like how awful it was. At first year without a car, on the bus, you know. Nobody goes up there for anything but prisons, so, like, you can imagine how much fun that is, you know. The bus got lost once. <laughs> it's like, ah. Um, so I did that for two years. Um, I probably would have got to keep that one because I think they liked me, except 9-11 happened and the state was broke and there was no money. Um, so, yeah, I lost that job and I was teaching composition at Albany, which I hated. Um I hated Albany so much I lived in Troy, like in the Rensselaer part, you know, which has been going downhill since the Civil War. You could buy a building downtown for about $20,000 at the time, which was really tempting, you know, and, and they were like, 
you know, I got taken to the third best Thai restaurant in Albany and told, you know, you got to write another book before we'll consider you for tenure and you must live here full time. And it's like, I already wrote three books, right? Like, this is massively unfair and incredibly rude. And also, this Thai food is just not that great. <laughs> but I, I kind of thought that was my fate, you know. It's like, oh, I'm going to move to freaking Albany. But yeah, I got, uh, I lucked into a three-year contract at Lang College. It was unranked, you know, maybe renewable. And I just thought, I'm taking it, you know, I'm, I'm going to be there. And I've been there for 15 years, you know, like uh, I have a courtesy appointment in the grad school. My, my job's in the undergraduate division, which I've been conflicted about, but decided I really love. I'd rather teach undergrads. I don't want my job. Like graduate students got very conservative because they it's, they're just desperate. There aren't any jobs. Whereas undergrads are like, show me the world. You know, it's like so much more fun. And also, I don't have responsibilities to a field. Like, I'm technically in media studies, but if I'm teaching undergrads. I don't have to shepherd grad students through the the job market filter. I can basically write about whatever I like. So it's like, why did I keep trying to leave this? It was golden, you know? Like, I, I'm really in this sweet spot. So what year did you start at Eugene Lee? 2003. And how were you spending, uh, going back, how were you spending the mid and late 90s in Australia? What were you doing before you moved? Can I remember? Were you back in Sydney? Yeah, yeah, I was always in Sydney. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, first, oh, okay. first 80 years of my life in Newcastle, then there's 20 years in Sydney, and now 20 years in New York. So Got it's it. like my Got life it. is yeah. in three chunks, like, yeah. you know, geographically <laughs> kind of thing. Um, I have this love-hate relationship with Sydney now because it's gone, like all of my world's gone. Um, yeah, I, and you know, I was just like bouncing from one relationship that last a couple of years to another, and um, I wasn't a terrible straight boyfriend, you know. I was like fairly aware and and respectful of partners, but it just never lasted, you know. There was something going on. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what, what was going on, and I, I was, you know, I was having when I was having sex, I was dissociated. You know, I was falling in love with people I wanted to be like over and over again, you know, and, and then I'd be attempt to be gay and I'm like, you know, gay men don't want to have sex with someone they think is a boy who wants to be a woman. That's just not what they want, you know, like that's not working, you know. So I never really figured it out, you know, but that was, that was like my life. And, uh, and you know, at least a few times a year, I would just get really, really high and that would be like my best days, you know. Just get high and have sex. That was what I lived for, you know. Um, oh, and and parties, you know. I'm 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 an introvert. I'm not really sociable, but I just it just seemed to be a world that my body responded better to. You know, I can't do it anymore. But in my time, that was what I did. So yeah, I was teaching and I was writing. And I I wrote three books before I emigrated, you know. And, uh, and two of those were direct interventions in the culture wars. I didn't really touch on trans stuff at all, but I felt like, um, you know, the it was all about, you know, diversity and, and feminism and like all these postmoderns and all these things that you were getting attacked as, you know, as ways to kind of assert some conservative hegemony on the culture that had kind of exploded in the early 80s and effervesced in all sorts of interesting ways. Uh, like the the biggest tourist event in Australia is the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras. You know, like hundreds of thousands of people show up for that. You know, um, I had a I had a 
kind of bad relationship with that. Uh, I missed the demonstration it started from, which I still feel guilty about, where everybody got beat on by the cops. Some really smart queens figured out to not make it a protest, but to make it Mardi Gras, and to move it and claim it. And that was just political genius. I have so much respect for the folks who did that, most of whom are dead, right? Um, and it became the game lesbian Mardi Gras because dykes had to run stuff, right? Like everybody was fucking dying. So, you know, it became intracommunal politics and dykes ran it. But it just got bigger and bigger. But there was this moment where it got so big that it's like, all right, we've got to stop all these straights from coming from the damn party. Like, how do we do it? We'll make everyone sign a piece of paper when they're members where you can be either gay or you can be lesbian and there's no third choice. Right? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't really identify with either of those. Do I have to like go into the closet to stay in this organization I've been in ever since it had a membership? You know, so I was so alienated by that to be like pushed out of my own community, you know? And then like grudgingly let the, the trans people in, you know, because they were like, you know, what the fuck? You let us entertain you, you know, because this was a category at the time include, included people who did drag as well as people who were gender non-conforming and trans. Um, no, okay, you're, you're, you're in as well, but not the bisexuals. <laughs> I'm like, fuck this, you know. So, yeah, I was kind of alienated from my own community in that sense, you know. But, yeah, I was, that was 90s Australia, like, fighting the culture wars and losing, essentially, like, the lost. Tell us about your books and the process of making them and like, what their circulation was yeah, like. Yeah, the first one was academic and... Um, happened by accident someone from Verso wrote to me in um, uh, 1988 about something I'd written I was like well if you ever want to do a book bear Verso in mind and I'm like oh, I'll propose a book you know like I didn't realize it should be my PhD or something I didn't have it you know I, I did this book before I did my PhD with it which ended up with the University Press you know uh, and then I did two trade books which were for Australian readerships like I was I was a quote-unquote public intellectual you know um it's like, and, I, and this is sort of like a real, like, syndrome. If you're like, you know, A, sort of in the closet about shit, or B, you don't even consciously know that you are, you become public. You create a public persona. Yeah, I just think this is such a thing. And so, yeah, I was, I was you know, writing newspaper columns and, and doing all this public speaking and, and on the radio and stuff. Like, I was a, you know, C-list public intellectual through the 90s, you know, like trying to fight the good fight, you know, like I was always verbal. Um, that was how I survived school, yeah. I was always like this runty little, like weed of a kid, you know. Um, and I was in public schools in a small city, so these were like multi-class, you know, and I had a lot of respect for working class kids, but, but you know, that sort of weren't super keen on your like faggy affectations. Or your bourgeois pretentiousness would get you a bit down as well, yeah? So I mostly managed to avoid that by being funny, by by having stories, right? So, I, like, I had this early, you know, this this way of enduring. So uh, I could think on my feet. I'm a law school dropout too, right? I kind of thought I'll be a barrister, you know? But then at some point I'm like, oh, my God, do I really want to be in court about tax law? Like, I, I don't think so, you know? Like, that's not like any fun, and, I just kind of knew I was too weird for that, you know. 
anything else around your life in Australia that you'd like to talk about before we talk more about New York? Yeah, that was sort of it. You know, I was like C-list um, public intellectual. I was, I was involved in in not that the sort of founding of cultural studies in Australia, but the the second wave of it. I was up for things a little too late academically. I find you know. Um, so yeah, I had a, had a reasonable career academically, and and I'm you know uh, appearing in public and um, you know sort of struggling to have relationships. I think and that you know I've, I figured out much later because you know I, I the term gender dysphoria is problematic and, and not all of us love it, right? And and I definitely didn't have it in the acute form, but I sort of think I had this obtuse. You know, like gender dysphoria, I couldn't place, I couldn't relate to it, and and I felt that my thought about trans people, particularly trans women, is that it's an option but surgical. I didn't understand anything about hormones at all. I thought that's a surgical option for like aligning yourself. That uh, I have only just figured out couldn't do and probably still can't because the other thing that's relevant about my life is I was born with club feet. I've, I've had, you know, six surgeries on my feet starting, you know, in, in childhood. And that was just so awful. I don't want to have any relation to that space ever again, you know? So I only figured out much, much later that these things were connected in my head that, uh, I I couldn't think of myself as trans partly for that reason I misunderstood the range of things that could be like obviously surgical transition is valid it's just for me that was a thing I couldn't and maybe still can't you know approach so yeah that's where I was when I immigrated so when you were living in New York State you moved here for one person yeah what were your other what was your social life like and what were your connections with people like in New York? Oh, kind of truncated, you know, like trying to, uh, I'm still married to Kristen Clifford, bless her, that she's put up with me for 19 years. You know, I'm trying to get a relationship to work and I'm I'm upstate, you know, half the week and I'm spending the weekend recuperating. Like it's a four hour drive to Binghamton. So I, I felt like, I felt kind of severed from a social world that had supported me and I didn't acquire another one. And I, I felt like I had to acquire a professional social world to survive, you know? Like, I had these temporary jobs. I gave up tenure and came here mid-career. I had degrees from universities no one's heard of. If I was an authority on anything, it was Australian culture, about which no one gives a damn. The United States is just completely irrelevant to anybody. So I just felt like I had to reinvent myself, you know? Um, so, I, yeah, I, I kind of... Um, uh, I felt that I still feel like I didn't... I didn't kind of construct the social world I needed for myself and find the people I needed until a very long time. I'm still doing it. I'm still working on that, frankly. So you're pretty isolated. For, for apart, from, apart from relationship that I, you know, uh, you know, we, we, we have our stuff. Like anybody who's been together for 19 years will, you know, that, that I, I really felt I still feel like that's it. It's, this one's for life in one form or another, you know. I'm going to figure this out. And... You know, I, I think Krista knew as much as I knew about my queer self from the get-go. I hadn't, hadn't always been, been the case. Yeah, I'd been in, closet, in the closet with people. Um, 
you know, I, I came closest. Other, another thing that's like like signs you were trans that you were missed is you're having relationships with lesbians, right? I'm, I did that twice, if you count Kathy Acker three times, you know, and I'm now, I look, now look back and I'm like, oh, you know, like I was allowed in that world because there was something about me that I didn't, I didn't even know. You know. So, yeah, I, I just felt like I had to, you know, I got to the new school, we had to build it, you know, like in college wasn't a whole lot. The entire faculty would fit in this little room, you know. Um, and it's now like there weren't even departments. Like, we had nothing. We had to build it, you know. And I, I'm proud of that. I was part of that. And it turned out I had some political acumen about how you organize things and, and structure things and get things done. Um, and I did that. And I, the, I built a department uh, with my colleagues and I... I actually designed and ran the tenure and promotion system. It's the other thing. There's two things that I built, you know, that are still there. So I'm, I'm kind of proud of that. But it took a lot out of me. And, and there was a point where I felt like, oh, I've, I've been a chair and associate dean. Maybe I'm, like, management track. What the hell was I thinking? You know, like, I look at pictures of myself in suits, and I'm like, like, no wonder no one was surprised when I finally came out. You know, like, I look at myself, and I'm like, oh, my God. You know, like, you just... It's no, honey, just no. <laughs> so yeah, I you know, I I looked at being dean and somebody else stood for the position and I'm just like, that person would be better. Like they'd just be better. I have to make sure they get elected, you know? That's that's my role and I'll work for them. The new schools had an impact in, on a lot of levels in New York's mm. academic land. Yeah. Do you want to tell us some about its political history and the process of building it out was founded in 1919 by people who came down from uh, Columbia University because they refused to sign loyalty oaths. Uh, the founding spirit of it was John Dewey, Thorsten and Bedlam was there, Charles Beard. These were, were sort of legends and still known in their, in their fields. Um, they, they decided from the start not to have an endowment. Like, what were they thinking? And they sort of invent this kind of... Um, Adult education, continuing adult education as a way to pay the bills. Um, pretty much anybody who's interesting in like arts and culture in New York from 1919 through to, you know, almost to now has some connection there, you know. You know, uh, if you're reading, you know, memoirs or biographies about New Yorkers, if they don't mention the New School, they're just not interesting or authentic, you know, like it should be there somewhere, you know. And then I took a class at the New School, you know. So it's, it's just part of the place, and it's a significant um, New York Jewish institution. The original student population was at least a third Jewish because of ex being excluded, right, from, particularly from Columbia and from other schools. And it was the university in exile. So an untold number of um, progressive scholars from Europe who were going to get persecuted by the fascists and the Nazis passed through there, and that kind of seeded it. Then, And I'm, I'm a... Francophile rather than like I don't even read German, so it was a heavily German institution at one point. Um, but at New School is also where uh, Claude Levi Strauss met Roman Jakobson and invented structuralism. The French all went home after the war, um, but the the Germans sort of created this graduate school piece of it that I, I kind of have a, um, a a courtesy appointment in, but I'm, I'm more on the undergrad side. But yeah, it's it's I think struggled to live up to this dual reputation of its founding and its refounding as this kind of uh, open-minded progressive institution but there's no money 
Like, it's all tuition-based. It's ridiculous expensive. Uh, that's just the reality of it, you know. Um, and it's small. It's very, very hard to be a small institution. So I, I just feel like keeping it alive, keeping it viable is, is like, part of my job, you know. I, I kind of... I was, I was trained to be a cadre by people who ran things, like who ran unions, who ran centres. I'm not one of those Marxists who's in opposition to everything all the time. It's like, no, it's our job is to make things work, yeah, is to build things. And I tried. And I figured out, um, again, the limits to my political mouse. Like, I'm actually not as good at this as I thought I was. There's things I haven't got done, but... You know, I'm, I'm moderately proud of having been a, a trusted institution builder at New School, you know. And, you know, we built out uh, cultural media studies and screen studies. I got someone hired in, like, Anthropocene studies. And I want to do trans studies. Like, we don't have it. And, and it's like, fuck it, I'm going to spend five years, you know, like, building up to getting online, getting someone hired, right? Like, it's just, I don't know if I'll succeed at it, but... And I kind of have the, the contacts and I'm trusted. So if I say this is a thing we should do um, and have good reasons, I think I can get it done. So that's my mission now. If you're listening to this in the future and I didn't, please forgive me. I, <laughs> I promise I try. Do you want to tell us about your relationship with Kathy Acker? I met Kathy on book tour in uh, Sydney in 95, I think it was. And... Uh, and had sex with her in her hotel room because she was like that. I'm not. Like, I never cruised. Like, when I was gay, like, I, I cruising culture didn't work for me. Like, and I never did casual straight hookups, you know. I'm like a serial monogamy kind of person. Uh, but I did. Like, I yeah, I just hooked up with Kathy. And, and she had this thing. She would just instantly fall in love with people. And so it's not specific to me at all. I'm just one of many. Um, the only thing that's different is I kept their emails. You know, we were just emailing each other and then I joined her in San Francisco and we hung out together and then she came with me to New York we hung out together um, and it was I it, it worked because I actually wasn't a fan like I'd read her books like I respected her as a writer and I was super interested in her as a person but I wasn't like a super fan and I think she was feeling kind of alienated from that sort of attention so I was like just handy in that sense and um, my secret, completely unprovable, speculative theory is Kathy could have been some kind of trans, you know, like GNC. Like there's something about her that I can only read through those terms. And, um, and it's partly in the books and it's partly in her public life. And it's partly because I know sexually what, what she was like and how she tried everything to get right with her own body is how I feel about it. And I was too. And, and I didn't know I was doing that. I don't think she ever knew either is sort of the, the thing that breaks my heart about that. But this is a completely subjective interpretation. And as Kate Gabriel has said, you know, we all project. We all want to see everybody as one of us. So those are the caveats with that. You know? um, and, you know, I, I, um, I sent her a copy of the email correspondence. Um, I don't know why. I just think I wanted, like, I... I always felt very fondly towards her, even though like we tried to have a relationship and it didn't work. I sent it to her, and um, her executor, Matthias Wagner, uh, called me up out of the blue in like 
2005 or something, and I met him in Chelsea at this restaurant Sandra Bernhard used to go to, which I used to frequent for that reason and no other. And he's like, can we publish the correspondence? You know, and I, I really thought, I didn't want to do it. Like, I really felt exposed in it. And, um, and I now realize proto-trans in it, you know. And, and I was persuaded, you know, I asked a couple of people and one said no and one said yes. And, and uh, yes, yeah, so that came out. And then people asked me to do Acker stuff, right? And I'm like, oh, I should read the rest of the books, I suppose, you know. And, and, I, and that helped me hit towards transition, oddly enough, is reading Kathy because like the way gender works is just so liberating. And it turns out there's a whole really deep, trance tranche of, of trans people who are acker people like she's one of our people right like not everybody i was certainly one of those oh my god I yeah discovered her in late high school or yeah yeah and it's like ah, oh, like gender is so fungible in her um and it helped me like it helped me to revisit all that i'm doing a book on kathy now that i'm supposed to be working on now no i'm, I'm distracted yeah yeah, so that was that was that, and how it came back into my life. And Kristen's not super happy about. I still have the ring. Notice I have Kathy's ring, which I kept on the grounds that because she passed, it's not. I used to have jewelry from other girlfriends that I had to like, and boyfriends actually I had to get rid of. And there's there's the wedding ring, you know, like like a proper cis married <laughs> normative person, right? That that one won't come off. Um, yeah, so it's it it was a very brief but significant. Like relationship with my wife because she kind of got me, you know, and then she topped me, right? And she was the first woman who did that, you know, if that's what she was. And I'm like, oh, it's it's not about being gay or straight. It's it's I'm femme. I gotta deal with that, you know. The last couple of years have been quite a moment of reflection and discussion mm. about Kathy and her legacy. Yeah. Do you have you you obviously have played a prominent part in some of those um, uh, periods of reflection. Do you have any uh, thoughts or insights about her legacy now? I had a I had a bit part in it because of the correspondence. I think that helped. It was one of the little steps to... And it's another, like, you know, as I, I take the politics of knowledge very seriously. Like, I couldn't do politics, politics, but the politics of knowledge is something I know a little bit about and how to do it. And the canonization of Kathy is on the table, and I think we have to push and push and push to get that to happen. Um, the last conversation I had with her was in London. I, I think she knew she was sick and maybe in denial about it, and we talked about her legacy, and I tried to give her an account of why I thought she mattered that was bad, and I still feel I owe it to her. Was one of the reasons I'm writing. But she was still in print in 1997. You know, She's been cont- continually in print. She's now being reissued. Uh, the correspondence helped connect her to a younger readership because we were doing an email what people do now with texting and stuff. You know, like I tell people I've been doing social media for 40 years and they look at me like an idiot, like it hasn't been around for 40 years. It's like, yes, it has. You know, we were doing this shit on the internet that long ago, you know. And Kathy was an early adopter of that. Like you, you give her like a... a a connection to the internet and a bottle of wine and she's going to start figuring out like fun ways to play with it and she did all through the 90s and sorry in the last couple of years of the 90s so yeah I, I think and it was Chris Krauss who really wanted to do the 
correspondence with Semiotex. There was another publisher who sat on it for years and couldn't get it done. And, you know, they, for honourable reasons. Um, and Chris, I think, was seeing it as like this little beachhead for them to do her book. Uh, and then her executor is right, aha, all right, so that's out. And the first biography's out. There's going to be a second one. We're just going to march on into the Academy of Wings. Why do you think her uh, canon or Acker's canonization is important? Because, because she's a woman, because she is some kind of queer. Um, I, she's not pro-sex. Like, sex is mostly awful in her books, but she's uh, sex inquisitive, say. Yeah? Uh, there's a, a politics of the body as an open site of inquiry going on in her writing. Like, writing is, is can writing be a way of uh, bracketing off what ideology says the body is? and a way to discover what else it could be. And that is so enabling, not just for trans people, but we're one of the communities that helps. Yeah, um, So that matters to me. We do that. It's formally inventive and, yeah. How did your own research and intellectual interests change over the last since since you moved to new york i get bored really easily like you know there's foxes and hedgehogs in academia and the hedgehog just digs the same hole i really totally respect that i can't do it i get bored and the fox just jumps from one thing to the other and i'm like hyper up the fox end you know like so on this continuum i know where i am and always was you know like yep super fox in, in the academic sense um, so yeah, I'm notionally in media theory, but I've also written um, histories of the avant-garde. Um, I mean, the thing I was doing when I got here um, in 2000 was more what is the implications of the change in the uh, mode of communication that the internet is only a part of? Like, how does that change the entire structure of capitalism so i wrote hacker manifesto and gamer theory were the two books i, I wrote then um which was should have been career suicide um hacker manifesto got turned down five times um i really thought i was just done for um lindsey waters at harvard you know saved me like i i presumed on a very slight acquaintance with with lindsey who's a kind of legendary editor there and sent in this manuscript and he called me on the phone like four days later you know like this never happens in publishing right this never happens except with Lindsay like he'll either completely ignore you and not even bother responding or he'll pick you out of the slush pile and tell you we'll make this happen and their editors in academia there's always it's got to be external readers and there's editorial boards at Harvard there's two you know there's two boards and he just had that sixth sense for how to navigate through that and, you know, if it was good to get it through those filters. And he did. Like, he got that book done, you know. Um, so, yeah, a book with Harvard University Press. That's, like, you know, um, most people, I think, would agree is pretty top drawer in humanities publishing. So maybe it made it possible to stay. I didn't realize I should have capitalized on it then and looked for a better job, you know, because no, I, I, my whole life I refused to be mentored by anybody. And, like, I didn't do it on my own. People helped me against my will. Like, I'm totally grateful to all these people who looked out for me, who I 
just disrespected, yeah? And it's like a fucked up thing to do with losing a parent, maybe. You know, I talked to my therapist about this, but, you know, it's like, I'm not going to depend on you because I don't, you're going to go away. I'm going to do it. But of course, people looked out for me, you know. And Lindsay was one of them. Yeah, he just picked me up. So yeah, I did Dagger Manifesto. I did Gamer Theory. Uh, for, I think, fairly early intervention in game studies when that was starting up. So I got like a ton of water with that. Yeah, age out on new media studies. Like you really do, you know. Like I, I have very, very obsolete and now, you know, atrophied knowledge of Unix. Like I taught myself enough computation to get on the internet, like to find my people, you know. Um, so I did did cultural history. Like, like I thought when I was doing Hacker Manifesto that I was part of an avant-garde. That was where um, a punk rock approach to technology and the internet and the digital uh, and politics and radical aesthetics all came together. And I met so many super interesting people in that that world. And, and we were an avant-garde. That was our data, you know. Um, but, yeah, you kind of age out of it all. So, oh, well, I'll do histories of avant-garde. What's the prehistory of that? You know, so I did books on the situationists and, um, and that backs into, like, the Marxist bit. And it's like, oh, I read... I was reading freaking New Electric Review when I was a teenager. Like, I know this field. So, um, yeah, doing books on obscure, you know, sort of Marxists. And I did my Donna Haraway tribute stuff, you know. Um, yeah, so that's that's sort of the body of work in a way. And it's, it's like 12 books at this point. And, and at some point I just felt, fuck it, I'm a full professor with tenure and I write whatever I like, you know. So the next one coming out is autofiction. Yeah, it's like it's sort of not quite memoir. I think memoir is where the subjective voice knows something about themselves, and this is about my complete ignorance about my own life. So it's, you know, and some of it's a little made up because there's living people and the laws of libel in Australia are ferocious. So I had to fictionalise a little heavily around certain living people, you know, that I knew who were prominent, you know. Um, that's called Reverse Cowgirl, which is the best title I ever come up with. Um, and it has several meanings, one of which being an immigrant to America, right? To, to be a backwards American, you know? Um, it's, it's the, the luckiest kind of immigration you can possibly imagine because I speak English as a first language. I'm from elsewhere in the settler colonial developed quote unquote world, overdeveloped world. I'm legal, uh, the green card. I had a job to come to. But what is with this culture? It's, I still don't understand a damn thing about it. You know, it's a mystery to me. I feel so alienated from it. But yeah, I'm rambling sideways about this. But yeah, so that that's sort of the body of work, you know. And it got me tenure and it got me promoted. And um, I still have little stakes in certain academic fields. But I'm, I feel like I'm a bit of a the weirdo outsider. Um, I get invited mostly to the graduate student conferences that all these things connect to because and this was sort of like, I figured out as sort of my role, you know, I don't really teach a lot of grad students. Um, I have MA students I love. That's sort of like one of my joys is, is those folks. But I don't do a lot of PhDs. But I get invited to their conferences because they had fun reading my books. They just know they're not allowed to do that. Yeah, they, they, they're like, it's like this forbidden fruit that you write, write like this, you know. They know they're not allowed and I'm not quite legit, you know. And I just have some love-hate relationship with that, you know, being this not quite legit, like provincial colonial outsider you know um 
punk rock interloper with no credentials. I have an actual PhD, right? But it's from Murdoch University. People ask me if it's named after Rupert Murdoch, you know? And it's like, but what's hilarious is this is Australia, right? The answer is no, it's named after his great uncle. Because <laughs> the Murdochs were a prominent Scottish family, you know? As, as were some of my ancestors, frankly. We're, you know, not my branch of the family. We were excommunicated. But... So you've uh, lived in New York City for a while now. You've been... oh, 19 years. Yeah. I became a lifer. I, I was walking across Central Park the other day thinking, I'm going to die here. Not, not soon, I hope, but oh, it's just, it was peaceful, right? It's like, this is it. It's my place. I've tried to leave many times, but I can't. And you've spent a lot of that time writing books yeah. and a lot of that time helping to build the new school. Yeah, and raising two kids. Oh, wow. Yeah. And tell us about your kids. Ah, I don't know. They might not want me to say that much, but okay. they're they're 10 and 15 and they're, they're New York kids, you know. Yeah. I love them to bits. Were there uh, moments in New York's trajectory uh, during your time here that you were a part of, of, I don't know, the changing city or or movements here or scenes here that struck you? When I met um, Kristen Clifford was in Williamsburg in 1997, and, and she was like original kind of Williamsburg hipster, you know. She was like working as wait staff and trying to be an actor. Which is like, <laughs> you know, and, and rollerblading under the BQE, you know, like, and I was just like, oh my God, this, this is like, that was it. You know, you like go to all these bars and, uh, and the 90s, like it barely existed as, as a scene. There were all these tiny little art galleries and people were forming their bands and stuff. I'm a little old for, for that. I was in my 30s already, but I was kind of like, oh, I know this. This was like when I moved to Sydney, you just like hang out and people would do stuff, you know. Um, but by the time I got around to immigrating, it was 2000, and that was one of the property booms. And we got, you know, we were there for a while, and we got pushed out, went up to Jackson Heights. And, and I think both of us felt like we, we became much too uh, heteronormatively suburban, um, you know, in our, our, in our lives in a way. You know, it's really freaking hard to raise kids any other way in the city. And we tried. And we do have, like... Um, a sort of extended family by choice of people who all our first kids were born around the same time. And we've, we, we still collaboratively, uh, the, the older kids don't all get along. So it's sort of becoming something else. Right. But these are like my lifetime benchmark people in a way. And, and I was like, we did this summer commune thing where we're all together. You know, it's like five families, 30 people in two houses in our own lake upstate for two weeks kind of thing. You know, it's bonding, you know, and the, They've been through divorces and one of them slept with one of the other ones. Like all the things that happened, happened, right? You know, and one of them was trans, you know, like we did all this shit. But uh, I I remember looking around this crowd once, a time, once and I'm going, oh, you're like me. You learned early on the nuclear family's a fucked up thing and it won't work, you know, like you lost a parent like I did. Your parent was crazy. Um, you had to run away from your dad, you know, like, you know, I just looking around going, yeah, we, we got something about each other. that was just like radar and we found each other and that's why we're, you know, doing it. But I, I, I found this world too gender divided, you know, like I kind of love these men that I've hung out with for so long. We used to go fly fishing, you know, I'm like, seriously, <laughs> I, I'm so honored that I was included in that. 
but it's it's kind of not me, you know. I never, and it's like I I never did like I was never a bro. Like I I can't do it. Like, and that should have been one of the things, right? One of the signs. You've uh, foreshadowed a lot around coming to your gender yeah. process yeah. currently. When when did that start coming together for you as something that you could talk about and take some steps around or be more public about? Yeah, and it's sort of like, and I'm not the only person who reports this, I now actually have no idea. Like, you know, like Kristen found notes from a conversation we had in 2011 where I was still in this mindset that transition surgical and I can't do that, even if I hadn't thought through why. She has notes from another conversation in, in 2013 where I'm, I'm ready. Yeah, it's like, I, I'm going to do this. And our relationship has several things it has to figure out. And that's one of the things we've got to figure out is I'm going to, you know, I may be some other gender in the future. And um, Kristen got sick. She had cancer and is in remission, right? But this took several years out where I was I was just running the show yeah um so I that was it you know I just did that and then I don't know it's just a, in 2018 I I was on sabbatical and I'm like fucking now or never bitch just just do it I started femme presenting in public all the time you know um I got a therapist uh, I started making appointments you know like it just takes three months to get an appointment to see anybody so you know, I'm like chipping away at, at, at that and therapy helps a lot. Um, and I, and I'll, I'll say the name SJ Langer was so helpful and specializes in this stuff. And there's a book on it that I found really useful because SJ's way of thinking about, and it is rooted in the concept of dysphoria, just not everybody's, but that there's a, maybe there is a pre-linguistic basis to your relation to how your body signals to itself and that's what dysphoria is and maybe it's not even explicitly gendered hormones will change how your intestine works and maybe that's what's out of alignment you know what i mean so it's just it's a little speculative but i'm like oh that's so enabling for me i can embrace this because i've struggled with thinking this in terms of the social construction of gender roles my whole life and that doesn't seem to be entirely what it's about for me, it's obviously a huge part of it, but there's something else. So I went on HRT and I'm like, hello, like, I'm, this is it. This is how I'm supposed to be biochemically in the world. Like, that's that's it. I'm trans. Yeah. You referenced um, not being able to identify with the trans women that you met in Australia. Yeah. Has I feel so guilty about, about that, by the way. They're wonderful. I, yeah. yeah. Um, have you... The sort of ways that trans communities and gender different communities have evolved in the last several years. Have you bared witness to that or had contact with that in a way that's been positive for you? Yeah. And um, there were uh, individual trans women who were getting to know was really helpful to me, a lot of whom are much, much younger to me. And this is like trans temporality. Yeah. Like my, my big sisters are can be half my age technically, but in trans years, they're twice my age or more, yeah, because they transitioned, let's say, six, seven years ago. And I'm, you know, six months into HRT and a year and a half into the whole deal, you know. I'm a baby. Um, so it's this weird temporality. Um, so, yeah, it's been incredibly helpful. And I, 
and uh, trying to figure out what trans aesthetics could be, you know, because they were they were just like particularly books that that for me were just like so helpful, and they're mostly by younger people. Uh, and even if they're not my life at all, it was just something about reading Image and Vinny's Nevada, uh, reading um, all of Tori Peters' books was incredibly helpful to me, even though that's not quite my deal, like the way those characters are. I'm like, oh, shit, you know, like I actually sort of bought this whole thing about uh, autogynophilia, you know. I thought I was just some weird fucked up pervert about all this stuff. And I dealt with that like i dealt with that was who i was but it was still in in those categories right um i didn't realize i could i could think past that and and i didn't feel like i could be a legitimate trans person um you know i was attracted to women i'm maybe a kinsey three but you know what i mean like i just i didn't feel like i fit any of the conventional stories and here in particularly in fiction oh here are all these other stories none of them are mine but none of them are the conventional ones either. So I'm possible. I'm possible. And I'll write my own story. I'm going to write it. Yeah, I, I, and I did. And that helped as well. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's sort of uh, what's bittersweet about this is feeling like I don't have contemporaries. Like there are, you know, trans people in New York who have professional lives or academic lives um, who were born in the 60s. But... I don't really find people I kind of like gel with. Um, I'm looking, you know, just the people whose stories make sense to me are much younger. And so I, I felt, I feel like what I did is I made myself rare. You know, I like, I'm, I'm a lifetime fan of Oscar Wilde. This is actually one's goal in life, right? Is to be a work of art that's absolutely singular. But to me, it comes with a lot of solitude and I'm, I'm still trying to find, you know, how, how to, to whom do I connect? You know, where I feel like, and like, God knows, nobody wants to sit around with a trans person and talk trans shit all day. It's just boring as hell, right? But there's just something that you get. Yeah, there's just something about you get where you talk about something else. Yeah, like anything. But there has to be other things that you have in common, which is art and it's literature and it's theory and it's, you know, Marxism or whatever. You know, like I just need to be able to talk to our, our people about this stuff and feel heard and felt. And that's what I'm working on is I, I, I need another community. You know? I don't have it. So, yeah, that's, that's sort of the, the price of late transition too, yeah? Like, um, I'll be honest, I worked that male privilege, privilege bullshit for all it was worth. I mean, I, I did it. I'm like a white person who got a fucking job and got tenure and um, that I'm totally not entitled to, but I, like I worked those advantages. Um, and I just gave one away. Um, but I haven't lived the life, you know, and, but I came to terms with it like this, like I used to think if I transitioned in the eighties, God, I would have been a pretty trans girl. I really would. Like, I don't think I'm kidding myself with that. Like I really could have been fabulous. And I was so regretful that I didn't do that. And then like one day I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. I could also be dead. And the likelihood of that's high. Yeah, just because of HIV or getting, like, your head bashed in, you know. I don't worry about that so much now. Like, no one looks at an old bag on the street. Yeah, I I so much sympathy for older cis women being ignored because I'm also ignored now, right? That's how it is. Um, so, I, you know, I don't 
fear as much of, of that as if I was younger, but I could be dead. So now I just think, thank God all my younger selves knew how to stay alive and kick this shit down the road to the point where I could deal with it, even though I still dealt with it too late. And that's where I am. Why did you decide to do this interview? You know, I didn't want to do it at first. I took a bit of persuading and I was like, oh, I, you know, I, I haven't been at this long enough. I don't feel I have anything, you know, like I don't have any knowledge. I'm such a baby. But then, you know, and, and big sisters all, all, all like tolerate your enthusiasm of like, you know, you're going to get bored with this stuff and you're just going to live your life. You know, and, and so I came back around to thinking, I'm excited about this now. So I want to talk about it while I'm this like naive, like trans baby who wants to, you know, like <laughs> read all the books. And, and I'm going like, you know, I, was, I became such a homebody and I'm now going out several times a week because there's like a book party I have to go to. There's an art show I have to go to. You know, I, I got to see what the youngins are up to because I feel like, you know, my generation didn't generate a lot of trans culture. I'm super thankful for what exists and I don't want to. Like, you know, obscure the fact that books were written and art was made, but there's not a lot. And there's not a lot I feel intimately close to or aesthetically, intellectually connected to. But the stuff that's around now, it's just blowing my mind, you know. And I just feel like that's my job is to go find where's the avant-garde, you know, and we're it. But it's younger. It's much, much younger than me. So you're trying to create a chair, uh, a professorship in trans studies at the new school no i'm just like oh, i feel like i've yeah it's out but i kind of do this i'm i'm not someone who's um really much prone to depression but i'm a little prone to mania um, and i like get these plans i think i can pull that one off but like please don't hold me to it if i fail you know because i will have at least tried you know to get something to happen and uh, it's got to be full-time and and you know, I'm just trying to raise money for little things at the moment because it's like um, there's a thing in um, uh, Natalie Wynn video that she says just in passing and only once about being part of the trans 1%. And that just hit me like a hammer on the head. It's like, well, so am I. Yeah. I have a full-time secure job with a professional salary. How many trans people have that or will ever have it? So what do I do? What do I do without being some like patronizing charitable bitch about it? Like that's not, that's not good enough. Yeah. So I got to raise money and give it away. Like, but that's, that's not right. Yeah. That's, that's the charity thing. So can I create work? Can I create, it's not enough to create visibility, but I can. So I'm wrestling with this. I'm like, what's my job, you know? Um, and my therapist is like, you know, even just giving people recognition is not nothing. And okay, so like I do that. But I, yeah, I, I struggle with that. I'm just really honest, you know, what my role is, what my job is. And it can't be political with a capital P. It's, I'm not enough about myself. No, that's not me. Um... I'm still in this stage where, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people who do HRT will report. Yeah, it changes the emotional frequencies you tune to. Like, I don't think, it's not true that women are more emotional. This is a 
patriarchal bullshit, but it is true that your frequencies of emotional awareness are different. And I so feel that and welcomed it. That is like I had emotional dysphoria was like I knew that, but now I have a, that's what I know to call it. Yeah. So I feel so much better about that, but I don't have the reflexes that go with it yet. And I catch myself. Yeah. Like, oh, I don't have the, the level of sophistication of how you read what's going on and respect people and steer things. Like I can't, I don't have it yet. Uh, and maybe I'm too old to really get good at that. So I got to, you know, I can't do leadership. Um, so what's what's a backseat role? Like, you know, like if, if there's an avant-garde, I'm not in it. Um, I'm, can I bring the soup wagon? You know what I mean? Like that's, that's I feel like i got to figure that role out. You haven't referenced a lot about trans work in the academy. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts on trans studies or your relationship to it? I haven't read enough to have an opinion, you know, like I'm, I'm getting up to speed on it. Um, and, and trying to, I sort of a little more interested in the literary bit, uh, literature art media. Um, cause I sort of, I've been reading that a little longer. Um, and I, I think I want to take my time kind of figuring out, um, I kind of have a view of what the project is and I'm not, by any means alone with this line of thought, but uh, having been nested in queer theory, queer studies, has got its limits. Um, Vivian Namaste is already saying this, like, you know, in the 90s, right? That queer theory is not entirely for us. And I'm kind of, you know, queer identified in lots of ways, but, oh, there's parts of my life that doesn't deal with. Um, this is, and this is not exactly about performativity. Like it's not a concept that really works when you talk about doing this to your body and living it 24 hours a fucking day, you know? Um, so, yeah, how do you firstly, like, recenter a little bit, building on the, you know, the what I'll call the kith, the trans kith that came before us in the academy? We've got little pieces of this. And um, I can um, a little bit firmly make this gesture because I'm not dependent on... Uh, queer studies gatekeepers at all right? but everybody else is who's coming up so can I you know stake out a position that's a little bit let's be separatists so with all due respect to our queer brothers and sisters and, and I am also that we got we got our own thing to figure out here and it it's you know separate and related and the part that's separate actually needs a little attention and some thought and and, and a careful rereading of the pieces of that, how we can put that together. So for me, that's sort of a little bit the project at the moment going forward. And I'd want to think that through aesthetics. Uh, it ain't camp. Yeah. It ain't gay aesthetics. I love gay aesthetics. I even love drag, you know? And that's kind of like what a lot of trans people do. But there's there's something else that needs different forms, different modes of expression. So I, I really need to spend a little time yeah, carving that space out. And for me, it would also be about be about techniques. Um, to what extent are we... All human bodies are technically artificial. Uh, Preciado usefully does this. There's something kind of... Um, somebody once said it. There's there's a bonehead cyberpunk version of uh, Paul Preciado that's a little hard to take. Um, but he does do this thing of saying, all bodies are technical. All bodies are produced by these 
you know, sort of pawn and pill regimes and surgical regimes. So we're not alone with that. You know, cis bodies are not natural. That's so enabling. Uh, but the techniques part doesn't get a lot of attention. Like to what extent are we a special kind of technical body? And to what extent could our people have a knowledge of what uh, engendered embodiment and embodied gender be that is absolutely unique that cis people do not and will not and will never have until we explain it to them? Yeah, like how can we find the language for that? Uh, how much are we an ongoing uh, experiment in what it means to be human? Um, that's a really quite special set of uncontrolled experiments that have to be treated as such and not categorized in advance. And what's a, a, a knowledge you could wrap around that that's enabling? I think that's a huge project. And if I could do a tiny bit of that, you know, as one more project, that would make me happy. It's one more thing I can do. You know, I'm, I'm 58. You start to realize I got more projects in me than I'll live long enough to do. But I would so love to put a little stake in that one, move that along. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about today that we didn't get to? Um, yeah, I kind of think we covered the freaking waterfront with this, didn't we? It's like, you know, um, uh, and I was like really just holding myself back from breaking. Get, I got kind of emotional a few times. <laughs> I hope it was coherent enough because I was like holding back the flood a few times, you know. Um, there's nothing wrong with being emotional. Oh, God, no. I, I just um, uh, I, I just feel like um, a kind of tension between a, a self that was always um, verbal and was always mostly able to escape past that point. Um, like, like my undergrad, no, I am known to like just break down and cry in lectures, even before I was on HRT. Like that was a thing, but I just like that moment's so close to the surface now, you know, like it's like a weird cliche. Um, so yeah, I, I just feel like I'm, I've kind of like, um, uh, that's a little close to the surface here. Yeah, that's, that's my life. God, I feel like a little bit, you know, like it's out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, the other, yeah, the, the, the other thing was, and, this is like 21st century version of doing this. Like, like you know, I came out at work. I came out to family. I came out to friends who are like real friends in the world. You know, all that went well. I had to come out on Facebook, right? <laughs> and I had to do it three times because like most people don't even see it when you do it. Yeah. So I'm like the third time I'm like, you know, finding a hook to hang it on, you know. And the last one was to do with, you know, I, I had to like unfriend somebody who I felt like, you know, was cisplaining me, you know, and I explained that it happened. And it's like, it's a whole nother wave of people that like didn't know, you know. Um, but over and over again, no one is surprised. I'm sure I'm not the only person who ever reports this, but I got to get this one story in. Um, one of the three times I came out on, on Facebook, like Sandy Stone, who I'm, I'm friends with, just, you know, sort of like comments. Now you know why when you met me, I made you nervous. <laughs> and I'm like, holy fuck, I was clocked by Sandy in the 90s and she remembered it? Ah, oh, that's, I'm still like, you know, 
I'm going to cry about that one, you know. I just, oh my God, how do you saw me? And, you know, but it turns out everybody did, you know. Um, so that's what happens, you know. Like, And, and I, I now have a list of, yeah, what are all the signs I missed that, you know. <laughs> and when you transition to the lake, boy, are there are a lot of signs. So I, what, the very last statement, is anybody out there who thinks they've left it too late? Honey, it's never too late. Beautiful. So thank you, Michelle. Thank you.